This is the story of the Net Evaluation Subcommittee, Part 3. John Kennedy and 11 copies destroyed. And this is the Cold War Vault. It was a hot summer day in Washington on the 20th of July, 1961, and John Fitzgerald Kennedy, still relatively new to the job of U.S. President, arrived in the Oval Office at 9.50 a.m. to prepare for a National Security Council meeting. It was his second NSC meeting in two days and his third that week. In Berlin, the situation was deteriorating. Conflict with the Soviet Union about the U.S. presence in West Berlin had gone on since late 1958, and it had become particularly acute after the Vienna summit on the 4th of June between Kennedy and the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. In fact, the closure of the border between East and West Berlin was only three weeks away, along with the construction of the Berlin Wall and the possible escalation of the dispute into World War III. Also on Kennedy's mind that morning was the newly implemented plan for nuclear war, the Single Integrated Operational Plan, or PSYOP-62. The new plan had taken the place of the old fragmented war plans that had each branch of the military fending for itself and making its own decisions on the deployment of nuclear forces in the event of war. The integrated plan had gone into effect on the 1st of July, three weeks earlier, and called for a massive nuclear strike with the entire U.S. arsenal, comprising 3,200 nuclear weapons with yields totaling 7,847 megatons. That is 7.847 billion tons of TNT. The Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact countries, and China were all to be targeted simultaneously, with urban and military targets struck with primary and backup weapons to increase the likelihood of total destruction. This resulted in a doubling or tripling of the megatonnage necessary to level cities and leave them sheets of black glass. As an example, according to Fred Kaplan's book, The Wizards of Armageddon, PSYOP-62 scheduled 23 nuclear weapons for Moscow, 18 for Kaliningrad, and 9 for Leningrad. With the introduction of this new plan for the total annihilation of the Soviet Union and the increasing tensions in Berlin, by the beginning of July, the potential for a nuclear disaster was becoming increasingly clear to the president. In a memo from Deputy National Security Advisor Carl Kaysen to National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy, Kaysen expressed the concern he felt after he had asked for military contingency plans connected with Berlin and he was presented with a rebranded PSYOP-62, 
a plan for general nuclear war without consideration for subtlety, nuance, or a limit on escalation. Kaysen called the plan a one-shot response with all our nuclear forces. As far as the Joint Chiefs were concerned, a stray bullet in Berlin would, according to plan, lead to all-out nuclear war. In the National Security Council meeting on the 13th of July, attendees discussed the possibility of declaring a state of national emergency so that the reserves could be called up and sent to Berlin. Secretary of State Dean Rusk feared that this might give the impression of a mobilization for war. The next week on the 19th of July, there was a general agreement at the 488th meeting of the National Security Council that taxes should be increased as a way of giving the American public the feeling of participating in the crisis. Kennedy ordered four additional army divisions and two additional marine divisions to prepare for rapid deployment to Berlin if the crisis took a turn for the worse. This was the state of the world on the morning of the 20th of July, 1961 when the president convened the National Security Council at 10 a.m. to hear the presentation of the annual report of the Net Evaluation Subcommittee. The report began with a kind of disclaimer. This note had been included in previous years and reminded readers that the conclusions of the NESC relied on many assumptions but those assumptions were based on the best available data and the results of the study would be within realistic limits. With this said, the introduction to the report also stated that, quote, the scope and intensity of destruction and the shattering of the established political, military, and economic structure resulting from such an exchange would be so vast as to practically defy accurate assessment. This was Kennedy's introduction to the work of the Net Evaluation Subcommittee of the National Security Council. The 1961 presentation uses loose numbers and broad generalizations, probably due to the caveat in the introduction that the damage would be too vast to allow for accurate assessment. The text of the summary states, quote, Tens of millions of Americans were killed outright. Millions more died in subsequent weeks. The framework of the federal and of many state governments was shattered. Military forces in the continental United States were in large measure destroyed. In further sections, the report remarks that the resultant damage and destruction was of such a magnitude that the survival of the nation could be in jeopardy. One intriguing redaction invites speculation about how calamitous these hypothetical nuclear wars had become by the early 1960s. Quote, At least a nucleus of essential elements of recovery emerged following the light and medium attacks to permit the nation to survive. The next paragraph begins, the heavy attack was so utterly, 
and the rest of the text is hidden behind the black blocks of government redaction. One imagines that the heavy attack put an end to any hope that any nucleus would or could survive. The 1961 NESC report again described an unwinnable nuclear war that could potentially result in national annihilation. The group had come to this conclusion since at least 1957. From the beginning of the studies, megatons and megadeaths had risen and surviving infrastructure and assets had declined. The complete 1961 report remains classified, but there is reason to believe that the oral presentation to Kennedy that day in July contained new elements and analysis that moved the narrative of nuclear war beyond the destruction of the United States and into the realm of the globally apocalyptic. In his memoir, As I Saw It, Secretary of State Dean Rusk under Kennedy and later Lyndon Johnson recalls the July 20th meeting and writes that, quote, Adverse effects of nuclear war described by the report included serious climatic change. Even in 1961, long before Carl Sagan's nuclear winter thesis, we knew that neither superpower could tolerate the effects of nuclear weapons. This reference to Carl Sagan and nuclear winter is important because the effect was not described until a 1966 study by the RAND Corporation. That study indicated that climatic cooling might be possible after enough ash and debris had been lofted by nuclear detonations. The effect was further modeled and brought into the public eye by the so-called TAPS team of researchers, including Carl Sagan, in 1983. So the fact that nuclear winter appeared in the 1961 report would mean that the NESC had brought some freshly frightening revelations to the cabinet room table that day. The possibility of global climate change in the wake of a nuclear war would have been new to most people in the room, and certainly to Kennedy, who hadn't yet gotten the full, blunt force of an NESC report. It carried all of the weight and power that you might expect for the new president and his administration. Dean Rusk describes the meeting in his memoir. The first briefing on the effects of nuclear war came shortly after our assuming office. That lengthy briefing was an awesome experience. Long aware of the power of nuclear weapons, I was surprised nonetheless by the magnitude of destruction that a full-scale nuclear war would bring. Every aspect of life would be affected. To see it all laid out vividly confirmed Khrushchev's warning. In the event of a nuclear war, the living would envy the dead.
something very strange happened to the printed copies of the oral presentation of the NESC in 1961. Whatever new terrors the report might have described, the world may never exactly know. In a move that seems very unusual to archival researchers like myself, it seems that all copies of the oral report were rounded up and destroyed after the meeting. Even secret documents exist, and there's a record that they're held in a box in the basement of the National Archives or one of the many presidential libraries, and a note letting researchers know that it's secret and it can't be seen. You can, and I have many times, filed a mandatory declassification review request that sets in motion the wheels of a process to declassify secret documents. But not for the 1961 oral report. A Certificate of Destruction, signed by the Records Management Officer of the National Security Council, James B. Russell, reads simply, Oral Presentation of the 1961 Net Evaluation, Confidential Listing of Subjects Covered and Individuals, 11 Copies Destroyed. No surviving copies of this document have ever been found, and I've been looking. The complete destruction of the record of the oral presentation, as unusual as it is, does give a clue as to how seriously Kennedy took the information presented and how troubled he was by its implications there during his first exposure to the enumerated horrors of the net evaluation. Kennedy also had a growing concern over the security of confidential information and a tendency for his White House to spring occasional leaks. In June, Kennedy had given former Secretary of State Dean Acheson the job of drawing up a report on the evolving situation in Berlin and the possible responses the administration might have. Acheson finished the report on June 27th and Dean Rusk at the State Department circulated a memo that read, in accordance with the president's wishes, the circulation of the attached report has been strictly limited to those individuals having immediate action assignments connected herewith. The president's wishes were not respected. At the NSC meeting the next day, the discussion began on the topic of the security and control of highly sensitive documents. Acheson's report on Berlin had already been leaked and circulated. Kennedy made it clear to those in attendance that he didn't really care about leaks of, as he put it, ordinary documents relating to ordinary problems. But when it came to highly sensitive papers on the crisis in Berlin or nuclear war, he wanted the situation locked down. He immediately recalled all of the copies of the Atchison report, only allowing General Maxwell Taylor to keep a copy over the weekend on the promise that he would hand deliver it to the White House on Monday morning. It was just three weeks later that Kennedy was confronted with the disconcerting revelations of the net evaluation. 
Rather than risk another leak, this time of information that would likely horrify the public, the White House ordered the destruction of the oral report. Whatever shook Kennedy that day went beyond the annually recurring casualty estimates and expectations of destruction. Those numbers can be found in the summary and conclusions document, which, though it is heavily redacted, mostly omits information on specific force strength. It doesn't shy away from magnitudes of devastation. At any rate, it wasn't recalled for destruction. Along with the possibility of a nuclear winter, any newfound impacts of nuclear war that may have been presented to Kennedy and the others that day will have to remain a mystery. In any case, the effect the meeting had on the president appears to have been profound. In his autobiography, Dean Rusk describes Kennedy's private response to that July 20th meeting in a quote which has been attributed to the president many times over the years. He writes, After the briefing ended, Kennedy led me back to the Oval Office. As we walked through the door, he had a strange look on his face. He turned to me and said, And we call ourselves the human race. Another account of the meeting appeared as part of an article by Fletcher Nebel in the December 5, 1961 issue of Look magazine. The article was titled, The Great Fallout Shelter Panic. Nebel was a well-known political writer and novelist, and the account reads as much, with narrative and color, and possibly some creative license. He describes the scene in the cabinet room as the meeting unfolds, the president's pained reactions and the discussion that followed. Enough of the details of the article are at odds with the established format of the annual NESC briefings that you could be forgiven for not making the connection at all between Nebel's description and the July 20th meeting, except for the fact that McGeorge Bundy makes the connection for us. In a sternly worded, nearly breathless memo, Bundy refutes Nebel's account of the meeting on a point-by-point -point basis. He writes, Here is a list of the people who attended the meeting of the National Security Council at which the Net Evaluation Subcommittee reported. This account itself is riddled with errors. Fletcher Nebel was not at the briefing and hadn't been invited, so any description of the meeting is necessarily second-hand with all of the problems that entails. Nevertheless, the account is fascinating. Neville begins by writing that Kennedy had summoned, quote, top officials, including Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson and General Lyman L. Lemnitzer, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to hear four scientists describe the probable face of America after a massive Russian hydrogen bomb attack. McGeorge Bundy would have us know in points two and three of his memo that Kennedy did not 
quote, summon top officials. They came in regular fashion to an NSC meeting. And that the briefing was, he writes, not handled by four scientists, but by a group of military officers under the direction of Lieutenant General Hickey. Hickey was the head of the NESC at the time. Nebel's article continues. One participant watched the faces of Kennedy and Johnson as the details unfolded. Great cities in rubble, millions upon millions dead, vast fires scorching crops and forests, poisonous fallout sifting down over tens of thousands of square miles. President Kennedy, realizing that a sudden attack might kill his own two small children along with millions of others, sat as though transfixed. Johnson, whose face reflects emotions like a mirror, was the picture of a man in torture. The descriptions of destruction matched the content of the 1961 report and matched the conclusions that are available. Bundy's refutation memo doesn't dispute the imagery of great cities in rubble or the assessment that there would be millions upon millions dead, or even the destruction brought about by the mass fires and fallout. It's also interesting that Bundy declined to defend Nebel's characterization of Vice President Johnson as being the picture of a man in torture. Bundy did, however, offer a recollection of Kennedy's composure. Quote, I myself watched the president during the meeting and did not feel that he sat as though transfixed or showed great stress. I do not recall that he made any of the remarks attributed to him. How anyone could know what his internal thoughts about his family were during such a meeting, I do not know. The Nebel article is an interesting description of a meeting that clearly had an effect on the new president, but is, nonetheless, shrouded in a layer of secrecy because of that mysterious decision to destroy the record. A researcher would normally turn to the memorandum of discussions at the meeting, though the normal memorandum doesn't seem to exist. In its place is an abbreviated document titled Notes on National Security Council Meeting 20 July 1961. This document was prepared by Colonel Howard Burris, Lyndon Johnson's military aide. The single-page record of the meeting has the air of having been unusually sanitized. It's simple and utilitarian, and contains none of the descriptive color of Nebel's article, or even the descriptive narrative common to most National Security Council discussion memos. It's terse in tone and short on detail. It measures a single page, much shorter than these documents usually are, but it remains the only record of the discussion. It records a brief and unremarkable exchange between Kennedy and General Hickey about a study of damage to the Soviet Union following a preemptive attack. The president also asks about the overall trend of the effectiveness of hypothetical Soviet attacks since 1957. Then he asks how long people would have to stay in shelters after the attack. A member of the subcommittee replied that two weeks would be expected. 
The last paragraph of the memorandum includes the president's direction that, quote, no member in attendance at the meeting disclose even the subject of the meeting. This final remark seems to reiterate Kennedy's interest in an added layer of secrecy and security. Though this official record doesn't answer any questions about what might have been revealed in the presentation that was so uniquely shocking to him. Maybe it was new information like Rusk's suggestion that climatological effects were discussed, nuclear winter from ash and fires. Or maybe it was just the weight of an enumerated and quantified description of nuclear war that could not be won and would leave the United States in ruins. A war that for all of the horror at the prospect all of the certainty that it could not be won, for all of the death and loss that would follow, the president himself needed to be ready to fight. This episode was written and produced by Dr. DJ Kinney. That is me. This week's music by Bortex and PC3. You can follow The Vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault and visit coldwarvault.com for links and show notes to this episode. Until next time.